The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And I am back from Japan. Uh, amazing experience. Tokyo Dome, Wrestle Kingdom 13. Uh, what a war I had with Naito. I promised it would be. Definitely a match that you should go out of your way to check out, as well as Tanahashi versus Kenny Omega. Uh, two great matches, if you don't mind, if I don't mind myself saying, um, to finish out the Tokyo Dome show. And it's just a, a great experience. I love the Dome. I love Tokyo. I love Japan. I love New Japan. So I look forward to working there more in the future. Nothing booked as of right now, but uh, hopefully we will have some good times a coming. So uh, great to uh, hear all the amazing feedback from the Tokyo Dome and uh, great pictures up on Instagram. If you want to go check them out at Chris Jericho Fozzy. And we got lots to talk about today. Something I've been really interested in making a murderer, which is a Netflix series. If you haven't seen it, um, you might not understand what's going on on this on this show. If you have seen it, you know just all the chicanery and the strange situations surrounding Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. Um, were they framed? Seems like they were. Did they really murder Teresa Hallback? I mean, many believe they were wrongfully convicted and set up by a corrupt sheriff's department in Manawak County, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, season one was a few years ago. Season two just released, and the series uh, continues by detailing the ongoing fight to get them both released from jail and their convictions overturned, and the fight being spearheaded by Chicago attorney Kathleen Zellner. And today, I've got author and journalist John Farrick here on the show. Uh, John was part of USA Today's Wisconsin investigative team in 2016 and 17, and wrote many in-depth articles about the Stephen Avery, uh, Brandon Dassey case. Kathleen Zellner has also given him exclusive access to a lot of the information and investigations that she and her team have uncovered and done on behalf of Avery. So John took his years of coverage of the case and wrote a book called Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery, which focuses on Zellner's quest to get Avery's conviction overturned and get him a release from jail, and hopefully Brandon Dassey as well. Book came out just before Christmas, and John's on the show today to talk about the incredible case and why he's so certain Stephen Avery and Brennan Dassey are both innocent of Teresa Halbach's murder and should be freed from prison. He also lays out everything Zellner and her law firm have been doing, and John shares an alternate theory of Teresa's murder, which Zellner and her team are pursuing, and names a couple of other suspects that may be uh, the real killers, talking about all the planted evidence, all the uh, coincidences and cliches behind the case, and he's also going to update what's been happening with the case since filming ended on the second season of Making a Murder on Netflix. So here we go, talking all about Stephen Avery, Brennan Dassey, Kathleen Zellner. It's John Farrick here, Making a Murderer. 
exposed right here on Talk is Jericho. All right, so um, Making a Murderer Season 2, I just finished watching it. It's sweeping the nation just like Making a Murderer 1 did. Uh, and I have John Farrick with me here who wrote a, a, a great new book called Wrecking Crew, which is basically the whole story all the way up to, to where we are right now. And John, uh, first of all, like you said, uh, this book that you wrote is basically geared for people who have seen the show and familiar with the show. And I, I believe, what did you say it was? About 40 million people have watched the series since it debuted? Yeah. I was just saying, I've, I've heard numbers around that uh, that range, uh, Chris. Uh, I mean, when you consider the first, the original Making a Murder was just such an unbelievable hit. It took the world by uh, by surprise. And then you've had so many people that, that are newbies, too, that, uh, that for whatever reason didn't see the original Making a Murder when it came out or they were in college or high school or whatever, you know, or, or you know, grown up now. But uh, but there's so many people that have latched on to the uh, the second series, which uh, which I really thought was, uh, you know, really well done and uh, does a great job of going in a completely different direction than, than the first series, which I thought was magni- magnificent to begin with. Yeah. And um, I, I know you've written books on on subjects of this matter in the past you know wrongful conviction convictions and true crime and that sort of thing what was it about making a murder that that drew you to wanting to write uh write wrecking crew a book all about it that was uh that was a little interesting too from the standpoint that by that point in my life i was actually back in wisconsin uh, i worked there uh, two different times uh in my life uh, at that point in time i was working uh for Gannett uh, in the USA Today uh, network. So I was an investigative journalist up in Wisconsin at the time that uh, Making a Murder came out. And we were all kind of, uh, you know, surprised and just stunned at, at, at the worldwide, you know, acclaim that this was getting just within a matter of days of it coming out. And I was fortunate that I had a really good editor at that point in time that, uh, that was around when the original trial happened uh, for Steve Avery and Brendan Dassey, Chris. And, uh, and he basically gave me the thumbs up as a reporter to go out and do as many investigative pieces uh, for the USA Today network as I could. So I, over the last year, year and a half in 2016, 2017, I wrote a ton of in-depth articles, just really looking at the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office, looking at the prosecutor in the case, uh, just looking at different pieces of evidence and the whole fairness concept of, of criminal justice for Brendan and Steve Avery. And so just from working on so many of those stories, I realized at some point in time, it would be worthwhile to do a book. But I wanted to do a book that was different than because th- there was two or three that came out immediately after making a murder. And a couple of them were written by prosecutors uh, that were involved in the case. So I wanted to put together at some point in time when I put together a book, I wanted it to be different. I wanted it to be from a standpoint of, you know, looking at the criminal justice system and Manitowoc County you know, really with a, you know, um, uh, a tough eye, uh, really a, a, a tough, uh, tough look at this case, because uh, there's so many aspects of the cases you probably know, too, too, Chris, that just don't smell right, you know, and just don't seem fair, regardless of guilt or innocence in the case. Well, let's just give a quick background for people that might not have seen it, just kind of taking us up to snuff. I mean, tell 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 the basic crib notes version of Steve Avery's story. Sure. The uh, the. Steve Avery, he was born in uh, Mantua County, uh, uh, not born on a junkyard, but uh, he was born into a family that uh, that owned uh, uh, a massive uh, um, 
junkyard uh, about 40 acres of land that has thousands of uh you know wrecked and abandoned vehicles out there and uh and when steve was in his early 20s uh, he was as i told people you know he was kind of a rascal he got involved in uh you know petty crime and uh you know just goofy stuff you know from hanging around the wrong crowd of people and stuff like that but uh but nothing of any serious or violent uh nature um as far as uh you know that goes but uh but anyway in his early 20s there was a young woman that was a businesswoman in mantuac uh, that went for a jog along the lake michigan and uh, she was violently attacked beaten nearly killed and raped along the shoreline and uh within a matter of hours the the sheriff of that county took it upon himself to put himself in, in charge of the investigation and basically railroaded Steve Avery and decided that, you know, this was a high profile case. You know, the family, you know, was begging the police to, to solve it. And just within a matter of hours, he decided that Steve Avery was going to be guilty of this crime. Um, so long and short, Steve Avery gets arrested. He uh, he goes to prison and he sits in prison for 18 years for a crime that he didn't commit. And meanwhile, the real rapist, uh, a serial predator named Gregory Allen, was able to get away with the crime, and the guy goes on to commit other rapes and eventually is in prison at the time that it's learned that Steve Avery was innocent of this crime. So it was a big deal in Wisconsin when Steve Avery was let out of prison in 2003. He's moving forward then after that. He gets some really good lawyers out of Milwaukee. He files a lawsuit against the sheriff's office for misconduct, and um, and it's a $36 million lawsuit, and it's got a real good chance of either succeeding or ending up with a really nice uh, settlement and stuff like that. Yeah, $36 but, uh, million, dollars, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and um, like I said, uh, at, at that point in time, um, it's 2005. We're two years uh, into this case uh, since Steve Avery's been out of prison, and um, the uh, – Teresa Halbach, a photographer that worked for uh, for uh, Auto Trader magazine, she disappears, and uh, and Steve Avery becomes the immediate prime suspect of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office, and uh, and within a matter of days uh, he gets arrested uh, and charged with her murder. Well, there's so many things to talk about here because if you watch the series and read the book, it seems you know <laughs> Stephen Avery with the worst luck ever. Um, and if you're going by what the series says, and, and this is what I want to talk to you about as well, about the two sides of the coin, he was put in jail for 18 years unjustly for, for, for the rape uh, of, of the lady, uh, the candy store lady uh, on the shoreline of the lake because they wanted to get a quick conviction. They didn't listen to the evidence. They just put Stephen Avery away because, like you said, he was kind of a local near-do-well rascal. Then, as soon as he gets out, he's about to get a $36 million settlement from the state, and the insurance company has refused to insure the state on this claim. So right when he's about to get this gigantic statement, suddenly Teresa Halbeck goes missing and they pin it on Stephen Avery. And it seems like it's just evidence after evidence after evidence for Stephen Avery's innocence that the, the, the state and the county are just sweeping under the carpet, almost like they have a vendetta against Stephen Avery for all these different reasons. Right. It, uh, it just uh, really seems uh, just so um, unfair as far as the standpoint that you had the Mantua County Sheriff's Office thrust themselves, you know, into the case, you know, when when several individuals in that department were already under scrutiny and, and had been uh, given testimony. They were really uh, kind of put up, 
you know, put through the ringer as far as with Steve Avery's lawsuit. And then rather than bow out or, or stay away from the case, like most good police officers and departments would do, it's the opposite in this case. Uh, these guys are, uh, are volunteering for the assignments to, uh, to lead the searches on Steve Avery's house, his trailer, I should say. And, uh, and then, you know, they're lying to the press. They're telling the local reporters that uh, the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office isn't really involved in the case except for, you know, getting pieces of heavy equipment, which was complete BS. So uh, so the whole thing really stunk uh, uh, to high heaven. And uh, and you had three different agencies involved in this, uh, this stench, Chris. Uh, you had the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office, which was responsible for Steve Avery's original wrongful conviction. And then you had the neighboring county, which is a similar smaller agency called Calumet County. And those two departments are kind of joined at the hip Calumet and Manitowoc County. So uh, um, it's important uh, for people to know that. And then you had the state of Wisconsin's uh, um, agency called the uh, Department of Justice or their, uh, or their um, DCI. But, uh, but basically these are state of Wisconsin special agents that, uh, that were also involved in, uh, you know, in overseeing and uh, making decisions as far as with the, uh, you know, the investigation and, uh, you know, collection of evidence and stuff like that. So in Make Your Murder Season 2, Steve's, Steven's still in jail. And also we got to talk about Brendan Dassey, who is his nephew that was implicated on a confession as a 16-year-old with a low IQ that he was kind of railroaded into, in my opinion. Uh, and it's the only evidence against Brendan Dassey in the murder of Teresa Halbeck that he gave this um, confession a tainted confession, and he's still in jail right now for life. It's been 12 years. And so then Catherine Zellner gets involved uh, to sort of take up uh, Stephen Avery's case. Now explain who Catherine Zellner is. Yeah, so Kathleen Zellner, Sorry, she's, Kathleen out of the, yeah, yeah, she's out of the Chicago uh, area, and uh, she's uh, um, a longtime attorney that's pretty well-known or has been well-known around the Chicago area, but probably wasn't as well-known nationally or internationally until season two uh, of uh, Making a Murder. But, uh, but she's a lawyer that has decided just on her own over the last uh, 20 or so years to really make uh, her law firm focused on uh, examining wrongful conviction cases and uh, people that may be sitting in, uh, in prison for a crime that they didn't commit. Uh, so it's a very small law firm. Her other people are, you know, really busy with, uh, you know, medical malpractice cases and, uh, you know, other things to kind of help, uh, you know, uh, raise money and, uh, you know, pay for the lights and electricity. But, uh, but Zellner has really made it a crusade that she's going to try to help people that are sitting in prison for crimes they didn't commit and get them out and uh, vindicate them. So, uh, she uh, she becomes uh, interested in Steve Avery's plight really after Making a Murderer Part One came out uh, in December 2015, and she uh, she decided that she was going to take on Steve Avery's uh, case, his post conviction, from that point forward. And she has spent Chris, I think, hundreds of thousands of dollars of her own you know money f- from her law firm to uh you know to hire experts to you know to travel to do legal research but uh it's it's all money that uh that she's uh, ponied up herself just because she believes so strongly that steve avery is uh innocent as well as brendan dassey now brendan obviously has a different set of attorneys and uh, he's been represented uh very well i might add by uh, laura and i yeah. and steve drizzen out of chicago at the northwestern 
University uh, Center for Wrongful Convictions, and and they've done just such a tremendous job, uh, you know, being in his corner when uh, nobody else really was, and uh, and actually I was at uh, I was at one of the I was at the prison in uh, Portage, Wisconsin, at the end of 2016. We were all there as far as us, you know, reporter types, because uh, you know that was the day that Brendan was supposed to get out of prison because a federal judge in 2016 had uh, had issued uh i think it was 88 pages 88 pages or so but a very long you know long well-researched uh um legal opinion that had basically overturned brendan's um conviction on the grounds that his confession was coerced and uh you know was uh inaccurate and um and so while we while we were waiting for brendan to be released from prison but what happens is the state of wisconsin's attorney general guy named Brad Schimmel, um, who really hadn't been in office very long. Um, it's kind of a suit. But uh, but anyway, Schimmel files a motion and was able to get the uh, Brendan's uh, release from prison stayed or blocked at that point in time. And then the case gets dragged on and on. It, uh, it goes to the Court of Appeals out of Chicago. And again, there's a ruling in Brendan Dassey's favor. It's two to one. There's one judge that was actually appointed by Obama, which kind of surprised me. Uh, but uh, he was very critical and just uh, it just really went along with the program as far as, you know, thinking this, you know, this case was legitimate against Brendan Dassey. So even though the ruling goes two to one in Brendan's favor, and again, you're thinking now he should be finally let out of prison. Um, that didn't happen either. You know, this judge, they were able to convince the whole Court of Appeals out of Chicago to hear the case which I think is called an en banc hearing, which is yeah. very, 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 very rare, I might add. And, uh, and at that point in time, the case you know, went back before seven justices, and, uh, and the ruling eventually goes four to three against Brendan. Um, so even though he won at two separate levels, you know, had two different sets of judges you know, overturn his conviction and, uh, you know, and, and think that he, uh, he'd go free or get a new trial, um, that didn't happen thanks to the state of Wisconsin. And it's just mind-boggling that uh, there's just so much bureaucracy, Chris, if you think about it, as far as, I mean, why even have all these lower levels of courts if, if this thing is just going to get dragged out and, uh, you know, and nobody's going to follow another judge's ruling and stuff like that. It, it would be like, you know, baseball or football or <laughs> pro wrestling for that matter, like having like five sets of, uh, you know, referees and stuff like that, you know, right. and uh, I mean, nothing would ever get done. And it just it just blows me away that uh, this kind of stuff uh, actually happens on a regular basis. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Two questions. One, do you believe that, that Brendan and Stephen Avery are innocent? With uh, with Brendan, I'm 100% sure that, that he's innocent. Be, just because... 
I don't see any scenario from, again, having 20 years experience in the field out covering these kinds of cases. I've never seen a, a murder happen the way it was described by the prosecution that they that they portrayed it as that this was a premeditated murder by Steve Avery, you know, that he was, a, you know, a sexual monster and a deviant and, you know, and, and was, you know, targeting Teresa Hallbach. The likelihood if that if that did happen, you're not going to have a scenario where he's, you know, torturing her, or, you know, or cutting her up in his bedroom and and here's a knock or a ring at his doorbell, you know, and walks down the hallway, you know, to see who it is and then lets the person in, you know, and it's his nephew. That crimes never happen that way. So right. so 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 just from that standpoint alone, the fact that we know we all know that there was no physical evidence, no blood, no hair, no DNA, no trace evidence found in Stephen Avery's trailer. And it was such a small trailer, and Avery's not the kind of sophisticated guy that would have been able to clean that stuff up anyway. It never happens anyway, by the way. You know, mm-hmm. so I've had other cases where people try to put white out over, you know, over blood spatter, and you can still find it. So, um, so I just work off of the, you know, the fact is there's no evidence that she was harmed inside Steve Avery's trailer. So I just don't see any scenario with with Brendan Dassey. And and getting back to Avery at this point in time, yeah, I don't see any, and I, I don't see anything that that connects you know him to the crime um, because all the other crucial pieces of evidence, uh, you know, have really been smashed and uh, you know blown up by uh, by Zellner and and her experts and stuff like that. So what are we left with? You know, we're left with the possibility that Avery could have commit could have committed the crime but if he did you know it would have had to have happened under completely different circumstances and scenario than what was presented at trial and then you get into the fact that some of her bones you know were found out at the Corey property and in, in bobby dassey's burn barrel in my mind both of those facts and events really um are to steve avery's advantage as far as just showing that you know it's really 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 unlikely that he's the culprit that somehow you know, was, uh, you know, was out in the quarry, you know, or out at, uh, you know, his, his nephew's, uh, you know, yard 60, you know, 60 yards right. away and stuff like that. So, I mean, so at this point in time, it looks very strong, you know, that Steve Avery, you know, was innocent and had nothing to do with the crime as well, I think. So then the other question is why, because when you watch the show, when you read the book, there's just like i said evidence after evidence that either wasn't submitted that's just completely ignored i mean it's hard to believe that there's a statewide countywide conspiracy against this man what what is what is your opinion on why this is happening well i mean i think a lot of it goes back to uh you know they uh i mean going back to the 80s uh, which was pointed out in the original making a murder you know, Steve Avery wasn't the best, uh, you know, best guy around. And uh, and uh, there was that situation where uh, where he uh, got so mad about some of the false rumors that were being spread around about him in town, you know, when he was in his 20s, that he had that unloaded, and I point out unloaded, but he had that unloaded uh, shotgun that he uh, pointed at uh, one of the sheriff's deputies' uh, wives, you know, and mm. was just really angry at her, you know, you know back in the 80s for... Uh, you know, for spreading false rumors about him. So the fact that something like that would happen in a small town in a rural area like this where everybody kind of knows everybody, and he and his family are kind of already written off, Chris, as far as, uh, you know, they're looked at, you know, as, uh, um, you know, less desirable people or, you know, or poor. people that, yeah, poor, you know. And uh, so from that standpoint, they kind of, the Avery's, especially Steve, you know, had a 
sort of a target on his back. So it's always it's always been it's kind of manifested and kind of grown over the years. And 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 part of it then over time becomes just to save face. I mean, it was just so embarrassing humiliating for these people that ran the sheriff's department that you know thought they were above everybody in town to be embarrassed by the fact that steve avery gets let out of prison you know and uh, then now he's doing lots of media interviews and he's getting you know wined and dined by some of the state politicians who were trying to do some justice criminal justice reform at that point in time in 2003 to 2005 and uh, it just it just had to be infuriating. And the fact that his lawsuit was moving forward and having success, not only would that have meant Steve Avery would have been rich and had a lot of money, you know, probably had more money than anybody around Manitowoc County, for that matter. But then there's probably going to be some fallout from that, which means that a new some, you know, somebody's going to run for sheriff. Some of these people are going to get cleaned out of their jobs and stuff like that. So their livelihoods. You know, you know, were also at stake as well, as far as if Steve Avery was uh you know, exonerated and, uh, you know, was allowed to, you know, remain a key, you know, part of the community and stuff like that. And, uh, and as, I mean, a place like Chicago or, you know, major city like Milwaukee, I, I don't know if people would have cared as much, but, but in a small town like this, these guys do hold grudges and, uh, you know, and a guy like Steve Avery would be, you know, kind of have a target on his back. Uh, um, just because I know that I saw that when I was out in Nebraska, um, you know, one of my previous books I wrote about where the cops were just so enraged and, and couldn't believe that they screwed up a case and, you know, arrested the wrong people for it and stuff like that. It just, uh, so they really, uh, they, they really do hold these things, hold on to these things and don't let them go. But how does that spread to, to, to Brad Schimmel and kind of like you mentioned the, you know, the, the judges at the Supreme Court almost doing this on bank review of the case? Um, where 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 is it creeping out of the of the county and going into the state and then into the whole nation? Well, I think at least on the state level, it uh, especially from my from my observations when I saw Brad Schimmel in action on the case, and uh, he, he just seemed like he was really um, you know just a politician that really didn't know very much about the Brendan Dassey case or the Steve Avery case, but was just kind of reading talking points and saying kind of with the, you know, the police and, uh, you know, and other, you know, people in his office, uh, um, you know, told him to say. So it's just one of those things that it's very hard sometimes for, you know, for these these high-level politicians or even the judges sometimes to step back and, uh, you know, and, and, and give something a really honest, you know, um, assessment. Uh, um, I had that years ago out in Nebraska where a judge found a very high-powerful uh CSI director, he found him guilty at a bench trial of uh, of planting evidence and stuff like that. Uh, you know, planting blood in murder cases, and uh, and and the defendant in that case, the CSI director, he actually asked for a bench trial rather than a jury trial because he thought, you know, no judge would have the guts to convict him, you know, of planting evidence. So it's uh, it's it's very rare, but uh, to do the right thing, and I was really proud of that judge because I mean the trial was really. Uh, an unbelievable trial but yeah it's uh you have these these people that that all kind of trying to save face and they're looking at it from a standpoint of you know um you know how's wisconsin's image gonna look you know if we would let steve avery out or brendan dassey out or you know be in support of their motion or try to work with kathleen zellner you know on on the evidence testing it's uh you know, there's a lot of states that have set up, I think they're, they're called like integrity, you know, commissions or, you know, the, basically prosecutors that work, 
you know, to make sure that convictions are, uh, you know, are legitimate. And, you know, and uh, you just don't really see that in Wisconsin. It seems like with this case, with the Avery case, if anything they've, they've done, they've, they've kind of uh, doubled down, so to speak, and, uh, you know, and really are trying to do everything they can to kind of plug the, uh, you know, the dike so the water, you know, doesn't, the dam doesn't burst, so to speak, on this case. It's uh, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. Seems like there's a lot of, you know, like perception is reality. And I think that happened kind of before Stephen was actually even convicted for, for the murder of Teresa Hallback in that there was so much propaganda and hype going on that he had done it that by the time he got to court, everybody's opinions were kind of swayed to the fact that, oh, he, he totally did it because that's what everybody was saying. And it seems that kind of, you know, a guy like a Brad Schimmel, like you mentioned, or all these people that are talking about the case don't even really know the specifics of it. They just know that, oh, he's, of course he's guilty. How can he not be? And then take that kind of mindset before they even know the facts. Right. And uh, th- that's definitely seemed to be the, the case to me. And again, I can only base it on my own life experiences, Chris. And, uh, and again, a couple years earlier, I had a similar situation in Nebraska where, you know, a different Republican conservative attorney general at that point in time, he actually set up a, ta- a state police task force and made sure that the local sheriff's department um, did not, you know, oversee this reinvestigation of this uh, this 1980 uh, late 1980s uh, murder that uh, that was questionable as far as whether six people that went to prison for the crime, you know, were in fact the the real culprits or not. And uh, you know, and in the end, you know, the attorney general you know held a press conference and uh, you know announced that all six of them, you know, three men and three women, had nothing to do with this crime, and it was somebody else that did the crime. And he explained in great detail who this person was and how they did the crime and how they solved it. And the state of Nebraska eventually gave all six of these people, you know, pardons. And that was technically not the most popular thing to do because, uh, you know, the, the voting area where this crime happened was mostly Republican conservative, you know, and so were these politicians that were uh, making these decisions. But uh, again, as the attorney general told me, you know, it was more important to get the case right you know, rather than, uh, you know, play politics and, uh, you know, and, and, and just kind of, uh, you know, you know, um, well, you of know, course. avoid, yeah, avoid the, you know, avoid the kind of the, the scary thing that's behind the, the door and stuff like that, really confronting the reality of this case, I should say. Well, to, yeah, because to overturn it, there's going to be a lot of people eating crow and a lot of, you know, a lot of lawsuits, like we mentioned. I mean, it's almost like to get true justice, a lot of other people are going to go down now because it's, it's it's been going on for so long. So there's a lot of people that are going to be protecting their own asses to make sure that justice is never served just so they don't have to, you know, face it. Yeah, that's absolutely true because, and, 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 and you can't tell me that in the back of, you know, some of these people's minds that they're not thinking, oh boy, you know, if we let Brendan Dassey and, and, and Steve Avery out of prison now, you know, who are they going to sue and how many, you know, depositions right. are they going to have to, you know, give and then what lawyers are going to get brought in and then the publicity we're going to get. And then maybe there's another making a murder part three. And the New York Times will come in town and stuff like that. I mean, those people think about those kinds of things and stuff like that. And, and it's uh, and I know especially, yeah, just even on the local level. You know, the city of Manitowoc and like their chamber of commerce and their tourism people. I mean, they were really trying to get some of the news stations and the newspaper in that town to really kind of back off on doing stories about making a murder after it came out because 
they just didn't want the stigma or the notoriety of being known, you know, for, you know, for the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey case and stuff like that. So you do have this kind of, you know, let's just keep this case, you know, let's not talk about it. Let's not reinvestigate it. Let's just kind of let it, uh, let it die. And, you know, let's forget about these people. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's talk about some of the... um strategies that Catherine Zellner is employing. Tell us a little bit what she's doing to kind of uh, prove the innocence of Stephen Avery. Well, she's taken a unique approach uh, from the standpoint that you have so many different pieces of really strange, you know, and odd forensic evidence that really came up, you know, that was used against him um, at the most opportune times. And what she's done, Chris, is uh, she's gone out and hired some of the, the cream of the crop you know, the best of the best as far as people that are really specialized in world-renowned experts in different, you know, different uh, areas of forensic science. And this is at her own expense, right? Because she's doing this all pro bono. Yeah, good point. You'll, yeah, stress that. Yeah, this isn't uh, money that the state of Wisconsin taxpayers are paying or anything like that. This is all, yeah, all money, again, that she's spending out of her own, uh, you know, law firm's uh, um, budget or bank account, so to speak. And uh, and she's met with people that are just unbelievable experts. There's one actually down in you know, Florida, Fort Lauderdale, Stuart James, who's really a world-renowned uh, blood spatter expert. And he plays a huge role in this case as far as the reinvestigation of the Teresa Hallbuck murder, you know, where he's he's come up with uh, you know, scientific evidence to show, you know, that, uh, you know, how and where Teresa Hallbuck was probably you know killed which would have been outside of her vehicle you know with the uh with the rav4 uh, with the uh you know with the back uh the back door or the whatever you call that the hood is that right yeah the hatch or whatever yeah the, yeah the hatch the, the there trunk, we go yeah, yeah. the hat yeah the trunk yeah the trunk hatch uh lifted open at the time so uh just uh, some really unbelievable uh experiments that these people have done and then she, i mean so you go from Stuart james in florida to uh a guy named luke haig who's out in um the Phoenix, uh, Arizona area, who's just a really uh, um, prolific uh, ballistic gun expert, and they did numerous experiments as far as on, uh, you know, firing from different uh, ranges to see whether it was possible that you could actually fire, a, you know, fire a bullet through somebody's skull and not have skull fragments, you know, left on the bullet, which is what happened in the Teresa Hallback case. And, uh, and then there's other experts that, uh, that are just unbelievable as far as being able to use some of the best microscopes around, you know, around the world. And they were able to really study the, uh, the bullet that was found in Steve Avery's garage, the one that was portrayed and represented as being a bullet that had passed through Teresa Hallback's skull, you know, that she supposedly, you know, was, was fatally shot inside this cluttered garage of Steve Avery. And these individuals have done all kinds of experiments, you know, putting this bullet under the microscope and they found, you know, wood, you know, wood particles, not brain fragments or brain matter 
but wood particles on this uh, on this bullet, which raises the strong possibility that this bullet just was pulled out of the garage because uh, you know before Steve Avery lived there, there was a guy that would just hunt you know varmints and critters all the time and just you know fire left and right you know, at the garage and stuff like that. It's a junkyard for God's sake. So, but, um, but anyway, so she's just really taken apart and there's another half a dozen other different examples, but, but she's just really um, focused with a kind of a laser laser focus, but she's just really zeroed in on individual pieces of evidence and just how they were misrepresented or, you know, or, or were incorrectly presented at trial that they absolutely have nothing to do with Steve Avery's, uh, you know, guilt and that these were pieces of evidence that were, you know, forged or, you know, fabricated, you know, by the police and the prosecutor, um, according to Zellner. Yeah, evidence to, uh, that was to build planted as case. well. Yeah. Because that, that's, that's part of it, too, when, when you when you watch the show and read the book, just how much of this evidence, you know, that they would go searching through a vehicle and then go search through it again three days later and suddenly, oh, wow, there's blood flex and now there's you know there's a bullet there's there's license plates in the back of a smashed window vehicle on on you know this junkyard that the avery's had right right you know there's so many of those things and i just it blows my mind that that they were able to get away with all of these things and that a lot of it never even came into to discussion at the original trial yeah no that's a good point you said it right there chris you said that they were able to get away with and that's the key component right there because it just it just blows you away, especially in, and I know that's one of the most overlooked pieces of evidence in the case because there are so many different pieces of evidence and you know and obviously I you know like a lot of people was really fascinated by that whole peculiar discovery of the spare key the one that showed up on uh, you know on the on the bedroom floor you know on the uh, you know sixth or seventh time that that Colburn and Link were in there but the license plates you know are also one of the most uh, interesting items that, that that somehow surfaced in the case um and several days later and uh you know and and again just from the timeline standpoint you had like 200 police officers and volunteer firefighters that were brought in on sunday november 6th which was just for people that's the day after the the vehicle was found on the outer edge of the uh the rav4 Teresa hallbuck's vehicle was found on the outer edge of the steve avery property so you have a couple of hundred, you know, police and firefighters search the, they canvass the the entire junkyard with four thousand vehicles or so the very next day, and and don't find anything of any any value as far as evidentiary value is concerned, and then you're going to have the next day you're going to have a couple of these Manitowoc County Sheriff's officials, supposedly being sent to you know kind of wander around the junkyard for a few hours. To uh, you know, to make sure that every vehicle was you know was 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 gotten to, and then and then what are you going to do? You know, you're going to bring everybody back, you know, a couple hundred people back again the following day, and then lo and behold, the you know crumbled license plates turn up inside of a junked uh, station wagon that's got no windows on it. So I mean, just that in and of itself, Chris, you know, it just stinks to high heaven, and just really looks like this thing was all staged. You know, because again, if you're going to go to that length to bring in a couple, a hundred people, why would you even think that that they screwed up or were so lazy or incompetent that all of a sudden you're going to need them, you know, back? And if you did really feel that way, then why wouldn't you have brought them back the very next day? Why would you spread it out and do it on Sunday, skip Monday, and then come back on Tuesday? 
you know. Right. When you were talking about the spare key from Teresa's uh, from Teresa's SUV that was found in, in Avery's house that wasn't there originally, all of these things. Now, th- there's something that you wrote in, in your book that I thought was really interesting. You said uh, the only way that three people can keep a secret is if two of them are dead. An old pirate or an old gangster yeah. saying. So, if this is the case, and there's, you know, a whole battalion of of, of police in Manawak County that are in on this, how are they all staying completely true and, and silent about it? Either they're all complicit, you know, in it, or you know, they also, you know, you have also have to look at the possibility that they may be involved, you know, in evidence planting or you know fabrication on lower level, you know, smaller cases that never make it, you know, in the newspapers or in the press and stuff like that, because, you know, as often happens in a lot of these evidence planting cases, you know, it's the high profile cases, the one that draws our attention, but then you find out years earlier, you know, the individual was involved in, uh, you know, in, in kind of lower level, you know, stuff. Uh, Mm. um, And I have that out in Nebraska, you know, with that CSI director uh, that I talked about where he was, he was faking, uh, you know, laying fingerprints just to basically, uh, you know, um, gain a reputation, you know, of being like some gun expert when he mm. really wasn't stuff like that. And then all the cases that he was messing around with, uh, you know, were cases that nobody had ever heard of or, you know, would even care about. But he just did it, you know, for ego. And then once he was already established as this great, you know, gun expert, then he was also going out, you know, in you know, planting blood, you know, in, in murder cases to help shore up the police cases and stuff like that. But uh, the fact is, it's very rare. It does happen, but it's very rare that you're going to have somebody, you know, turn on somebody like this. So unless somebody has direct knowledge or, you know, had a conversation with one of these, you know, sheriff officials or police officers from the state of Wisconsin that may have been involved in fabricating evidence or cooking up, uh, you know, stuff at the crime lab, um, it's unless somebody like that goes to the FBI, you know, that's the only really real way that, uh, you know, that they could, uh, um, you know, do this because oftentimes if word gets out that that you're going around, you know, trying to trying to work behind the scenes and expose somebody in your own police department, some, those yeah. are the people that do disappear. I got a case like that that predates me but goes back to 1990 here in, in uh, you know, in Joliet, oh, really? Illinois, in Will County, Drew Peterson area, where a female sheriff's deputy disappeared and has never been found. You know, she disappeared in 1990, you know, and, uh, um, you know, it's just uh, those kinds of things that do happen. And especially in an area like Manitowoc County, I mean, believe me, these guys would know that. So so unless they have direct knowledge. And the other thing, too, is they're not going to want to rock the boat because, uh, you know, they may all believe that, you know what, um, Steve Avery, you know, is a bad person. And, you know, Brendan Dassey was going to grow up to be a bad person. I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just saying they probably believe that. So in their minds, for a lot of them, they may believe, well, you know what? Steve Avery didn't do the Teresa. We don't know if he did the Teresa Hallbuck murder. But you know what? If he's out in society, if he's out in the street, he's going to do something to harm some other woman or or beat somebody up or kill them. So he's better off in prison. So that's kind of how a lot of they a lot of them justify whether there was evidence that was planted or manipulated or staged in in this case or other cases they they believe that the person was no good to begin with and you know and if we had to cut some corners you know and kind of cheat a little bit so to speak you know the ends justify the means means. that's really what it boils down to 
When when you talk about this uh, planting of evidence, is this something that happens, you know, on a regular basis throughout the country? Um, it happens uh, frequently. It, it you know, as far as regular basis, uh, you know, I would say it it happens in a you know very small percentage of cases, but it does it does happen. happen. I, I don't want people to kind of you know be naive and think that Steve Avery case may be the only case that. Uh, some some nonsense like this has happened because that's that's definitely not the case. So it's it's hard for it to come out as far as for people to learn about it. But it, it does come out usually if the evidence that's planted, you know, doesn't match up, you know, with with the person that was involved in the crime, you know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I have like I said, I had a case ten years ago when I was out in Omaha, Nebraska, where a CSI guy goes, uh, he, he ruins his career. And, uh, you know, and eventually went to prison, you know, for planting blood, you know, in, in at least two different murder cases. I, I always suspected and I point out in my book that he you know, may have did it in at least a half a dozen other ones. But just where he was uh, where even people that he worked with started to become suspicious. And it was just like you said, you know, oftentimes he was going back into, a, you know, into a car, you know, or a house, you know, a second or a third time around. And in one case. There was actually a dumpster, you know, that uh, that, uh, you know, there was a little boy had disappeared. And, uh, you know, the belief was that his deranged father had, had committed the crime, um, which was true. But uh, again, to shore up the case because the little boy's body was never found. The CSI investigator, uh, just, you know, came up and claimed that he found some blood in this in this outside dumpster, you know, five months after the boy had disappeared. That fact just couldn't it could not have happened that way. And eventually, you know, you know, renowned experts from California came in and testified that, no, this dumpster had been dumped 40 some times you know, between January and uh, in June. And plus, it was outside in the weather. It was raining all the time. It was snowing all the time. You know, you would not have been able to get a perfect, you know, pristine DNA sample, you know, from the bottom of the dumpster. Like this, like this CSI investigator, you know, had had claimed, right? You know, when when he faked this case. Let me ask you this, John. Um, just thinking about Teresa's family, because they're very much involved in making a murder. You know, part one and two, they're always at the trials. They're always in the court. Uh, Sh- Schimmel's whole mo is every time they ask him about, you know, what's going on, it's like we just want to bring justice to Teresa's family and bring peace of mind to Teresa's family. If I was in Teresa's family and there's this much controversy over who had done this, I would start wanting to know more as well. Are they at all in in your dealings with with anybody, with the brothers or the parents? Do they 1,000% still believe it's Avery or Brendan? Are they ever questioning things? What did you find out about that? I, I'm I'm of the opinion that they're just kind of uh, you know going along with the program and kind right. of always have. Uh, it just uh, they for the most part have have you know made the decision to really either avoid being interviewed or give interviews you know in in these recent years. Uh, the other thing I don't know, which does happen a lot of times, is that sometimes you know these families become intertwined you know, with the police investigators on right. the case. And I and I could tell you from, again, from experience, you know, on other cases like this, where sometimes that's when the police kind of really, you know, double down and, and they really tell these families, you know, no, you know, we got it right the first time around. This is just some unethical defense attorney that's trying to make a name for himself right. or something like that, uh, when the opposite is really true. But again, if, if, if you have an emotional 
connection between, you know, some of these investigators on this case from the get-go, you know, you're going to stick with them. And so when they tell you that they got it right, you're going to believe them. And uh, because really you don't know, you don't really don't have a reason to, to learn otherwise. Um, and, uh, but, you know, part of me though thinks that, that they, they're smart individuals. You know, one of them is an attorney himself. The other one works for the Green Bay Packers. They're, you know, they're good people. And you would think that at some point in time, they step back and reassess, uh, you know, some of the case, you know, and, you know, and, and have to, you know, have a discussion around the family dinner table or something like that to the effect of, you know, could this really have happened, you know, the way that uh, Ken Krantz and, you know, Mantua County told us it did, or, you know, or wait, you know, is there a possibility that Zellner and Steve Drewson are, you know, are right? Uh, uh, but again, it's really hard to reconcile that because then you're really reopening the whole case and you're going to have to relive everything. But in reality, that's going to happen anyway, you know. Well, so It's happening just, uh, just by the fact that the show is even on the air, I would assume, you yeah. know. Everyone's the worst thing I think anybody could ever want is closure. That's incorrect closure. You know, I mean, because uh, that I mean, that's no good for anybody. You know, right. Uh, if the wrong people under the wrong set of facts, you know, are kind of, you know, set in st- stone, so to speak, uh, you know, then then the community and the public, you know, at large, you know, is really underserved, you know, and, uh, you know, the truth needs to come out, whatever it really is. No, you're right. You're right. And then the question I was going to ask you then. So let's say Avery and Dassey are completely innocent. In your in your mind, who killed Teresa Hallback? As far as the alternative suspects, and there are a lot of them, I still go back to the, you know, the strong possibility that, uh, you know, as Zellner has done, you know, look at, at Bobby Dassey as being a logical, you know, um, suspect or person of interest, just from the standpoint of, of some of the peculiar behaviors that he's involved with Chris and uh, and the fact that you do have Teresa Halbeck's bones, you know, or charred bones are found at the bottom, you know, of his burn barrel. And the fact that he was a very proficient, uh, you know, hunter, you know, where he was pretty good at, uh, you know, cutting up, uh, you know, dead animals and really had no fear, you know, or, you know, of, uh, of doing that was pretty, you know, pretty good at it. So uh, the fact that he also basically puts himself, you know, as far as watching Teresa Halbeck, at the time that she disappears, that's another red flag in my mind, too. You know, as far as he's he's watching her, I mean, I would argue that he's, you know, he, he, he maybe, you know, as Elner said, you know, he's stalking her, he's watching her. You know, he knows that she's going to show up, you know, on Avery Road for this uh, for this photo assignment, you know, um, on her last, you know, what's going to turn out to be her last day of life. And then the fact, too, that you have some of these other weird you know, behaviors by Bobby Dassey in the days after the crime, especially the fact that he goes out and pulls this dead deer carcass off of one of the nearby roads, you know, and strings it up in his garage, you know, around the time that the police are starting to poke around and and look around at his uncle and also just the whole Avery salvage yard and pretty much all the properties, you know, on Avery salvage, you know, so uh, um, just a lot of, you know, weird, strange behaviors. So um, again, I can't say for sure, but again, I, I mean, Zellner seems to feel that she's on the right track as far as, you know, really honing in on Bobby Dassey and his stepdad, uh, you know, Scott Tadich, uh, you know, as far as maybe helping out as far as, uh, you know, getting rid of, uh, you know, the dead body and, uh, you know, and, and concealing it, that kind of stuff. So, well, and then plus two, then she found, you know, all this computer evidence of all of the, you know, horrific images that that uh, Bobby Dassey was looking for 
online that was never once again submitted in the initial trial for evidence purposes and all this other stuff. I mean, I actually screenshotted some of the things he was looking up from, you know, 11-year-old yeah. sex, girl naked, hot teen pussy, nude teenage mm -hmm. girls, drowned girls, uh, car accident, deceased girls. You know, this guy is looking for some right. pretty crazy pretty dark stuff, stuff. And, dark and, stuff and, yeah. and, and and i and i know that zellner's experts point out this was repetitive too so this was kind of like his daily his daily ritual or daily behavior so it's the exact opposite of steve avery you know who had a girlfriend and really wasn't you know online you know or doing any of this stuff uh, as far as looking up uh you know this this really seedy uh you know violent uh you know pornography and stuff like that uh you know whatever you want to call it but uh but yeah this is kind of bobby dassey's you know lifestyle and then and then you get the fact that i think some of those images that you were talking about you know resembled you know Teresa hallbuck or looked very similar to her and there's also discoveries of like uh like a folder on his computer that had you know, like a Teresa Hallbuck one and a Steve Avery one, and I think a DNA, you know, DNA for like DNA, you know, so just, mm -hmm. uh, just really bizarre stuff. And, uh, you know, and, and another one I just thought of too, Chris, and, and I point this out in the book a little bit, but, uh, but when he eventually gets brought in for questioning, um, you know, they noticed that he had a bunch of scratch, scratch marks on, on his back, you know, and he claimed that like his like, you know, two or three week old, uh, you know, Labrador, uh, you know, it jumped on him that very morning, you know, and caused those scratches and, and just, uh, you know, again, Zellner's experts, you know, look at those scratches and, you know, think that those are more likely to have come, you know, from, you know, a, you know, a woman's, you know, fingernails, you know, who's being attacked and trying to get away, break free from an attack. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just interesting that you don't see Bobby Dassey or Scott Todd volunteering to sit down, you know, with Kathleen Zellner, you know, and, and do a tell all, you know, and tell, tell her, you know, everything to try to clear themselves. And, uh, you know, wouldn't you think that if they had absolutely nothing to do or no involvement at all, they'd be driving down to Chicago, you know, wanting to cooperate with her rather than kind of, uh, you know, going into hiding or, you know, or, or not trying to make any statements and stuff like that. Well, it, it blows my mind too, that, you know, once again, uh, Ken Kratz, who was the 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 attorney, um, the word is escaping me, the, the prosecutor, that he had this evidence of Bobby Dassey's computer habits, but kind of buried it under Brendan Dassey so that no one would take it any further. You know, and then that that's blows me away as well. And then the fact, like you said, that now Tadich and Bobby Dassey have been you know, accused via making a murderer too, they're, they're not going out of their way to, to clear their good name. They're just ignoring it, you know? Right. Yeah, and uh, and that's a good point you brought up because that just shows you the, you know, how Ken Kratz behaves, you know, and uh, just what kind of guy he is. The fact that, that he, you know, went to great lengths to try to conceal, you know, and hide from Jerry Buting and Dean Strang, you know, the obvious fact that, you know, this this report had been done and he sat on it for like seven months and doesn't turn it over to the defense. It was actually done, I think, in May of 2006. But uh, but right on the verge of the trial, I think we're in December of 2006 now, um, you know, writes up a report, gives them like seven items, but doesn't give them this computer disk, 
you know, that had actually, you know, all this uh, this really dark, seedy stuff that I'm sure Jerry Buting and Dean Strang would have been smart enough to, uh, you know, to look at and realize, you know, this bolsters their game, this bolsters their chances to actually put on a, a, a defense that could point to somebody else as uh, as an alternative suspect. But without that disc, you know, without that report, they didn't know what they didn't know. And, and, and again, that falls back on Ken Kratz, you know, and his side, you know, making a conscious decision that, hey, we're not going to give this over to these guys, you know, because, you know, we're, you know, we know if we do, there's a chance that, uh, you know, this could really harm or damage, you know, the case that we're going to go to trial against Brendan Dassey and Steve Avery, in my opinion. Now, is it, I mean, this is something too, just like if it has, you know, if Scott Tadic, Tadic, Tadic who is uh, Brendan's stepfather, and Bobby Dassey, who's Brendan's brother, if they did do this, how much more diabolical is it that they've let their brother, you know, stepson, rot in jail for 12 years? You know, that that to me is the one where it's like, there's no way that they could have done it because who could allow that, you know, to let your brother just sit there in jail knowing that it was you who really did it? It's it's unbelievable. But actually, if, if you look up, uh, I think if somebody, if you would Google uh I think it's just wrongful convictions, and I think the last name is Bledsoe, if I'm not mistaken. But it was, I think it's either out of Kansas or Missouri. And I'm pretty sure it's Kansas. But a, an exact situation like that happened, where uh, where an individual went to prison for several years for a murder that was actually committed by his brother. And when the police finally got around to exonerating, you know, the wrongfully convicted uh, guy, and you know, and we're moving forward. And I think they even got a warrant, you know, for the arrest of the other brother. Many years later, you know, he killed himself before the police were able to get there. So, but that fact that did happen. So, I mean, there's there's situations around the country where the same same scenario had, uh, had happened. And actually, I think there was a case in Wisconsin that uh, it was either Jerry Buting, I think it was, yeah, Buting or Strang had represented a, a guy with the last name of Armstrong. And he went to prison for many years in Wisconsin for for a rape and a murder that uh, that uh, was ultimately committed by his brother, who was dead by the time that the case, you know, the true facts wow. of the case were, you know, came out and stuff like that. So, as as like you said, as as crazy as that sounds, and people can't believe that that would really happen, it has happened, and it's happened, you know, multiple occasions and stuff like that. So I, I, I don't know how somebody could live with that, but uh, but it, it's happened. Well, yeah, and that's. You know, as as we wind down here, um, you know, I, I've seen some of Kathleen's uh, tweets. She's very much uh, on social media to giving her version of the murder timeline about how, you know, once again, that's another thing that Bobby Dassey claimed that that Teresa never left Avery's property, and then we find out she did leave the property. The car was found off the property, then brought back onto the property. I mean, there's so much stuff. The bones, like you mentioned, they're in you know Bobby Dassey's burn barrel, and they're in Stephen Dassey's, and all this other stuff. There's so much evidence coming out now. And at the end of Making a Murderer 2, Zellner uh, tries to get a retrial based on new evidentiary uh, findings. It gets turned down, basically rubber stamped by a judge in, in Mantua County or wherever it was. What's the update now? Because I'm sure that 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 series debuted in November, probably filmed till probably I don't know April May. Do we have any more uh, leads findings uh, at this point in time? 
Yeah, there's actually been a couple other developments, too, that are really interesting that definitely deserve people's attention keeping up on. Uh, just in the last few weeks or so, Zellner has uh, has partnered up um, with a gentleman. He's out of Harvard, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he's out of the, you know, East Coast, Massachusetts area. And uh, he, uh, I think um, um, 60 Minutes had uh, had recently profiled him, but he's become, you know, one of the, the premier DNA experts in the, in the world now. And uh, and he actually was out in California just a few months ago after the, after the wildfire wildfires and was able to, to basically uh, do some um, unbelievable, like on the spot, DNA testing that was able to identify, I think, like 40 some, like 80 percent of the, you know, the burn victims. He was able to you know get them identified and he's been, um, you know, authorized. He's certified, you know, the FBI and CIA, you know, all the major agencies have, uh, you know, vouched for his work. So he's come on board. Zellner's partnered up with him. And now they're trying to get access to those bones that were found at the quarry. You know, again, those were the bones that were really kind of kept out of the original trial. They were downplayed. Uh, Kratz had portrayed them as not even being, you know, human, or you're probably not being human. But, uh, but nonetheless, Zellner was able to find that not only was that, you know, controversial, you know, pelvic bone still in existence, but there were also two other areas in the quarry, uh, two completely different areas where where apparently human bones were found, human bones that have never been. Um, identified to this point in history um is you know which is pretty damn suspicious mm -hmm. if you ask me so so she's brought this individual on board now they're trying to get you know they're waiting for the state of wisconsin's you know response as far as is, is wisconsin going to you know go along with the program and say yes let's get these uh these tested by by your your new expert i think it's like last name is selden if i'm not mistaken i'm pretty sure he's on twitter but uh but and, and, and she's even pointed out that she's totally fine and, and welcomes, you know, anybody from Wisconsin, from the prosecution side, they can be present, you know, and observe, you know, when this guy does do his tests and stuff like that. So it's not going to be, you know, anything that she's trying to do, you know, in the dark, but she wants to be totally transparent, you know, on all this. And again, that would really be huge, don't you think, if somehow we know for a fact that all these bones that were found at the quarry sites you know, where Teresa Hallbucks, because again, it t totally, you know, dismantles the prosecution's original theory that somehow, tr you know, Steve Avery, you know, butchered and, you know, tortured right. Teresa Hallbuck in his bedroom. And then she's still barely alive and he takes her out to his garage and fires a couple, you know, more shots into her head and makes sure she's dead and then throws her body, you know, in his burning fire on Halloween night with Brendan there. And, uh, you know, and, and, and then, oh, by the way, you know, a half a mile away is where Teresa Halbeck's, you know, bones, you know, really, you know, turned up. And stuff right, like right, right, right. So. And, and then there's also news now that Andrew Colburn, the, the one of the sheriffs who completely blew it, <laughs> if you watch the yeah. show, that he's now suing Netflix uh, for defamation of character. And Zellner said it's like an early Christmas present. Uh, explain that. Yeah, I mean the the thing about that, I mean, and and I just watched a few weeks ago, you know, the Innocent Man, which was really well done, uh, the documentary on Netflix uh, that was about the John Grisham book, uh, you mm -hmm. know, from uh, from a little while ago, and uh, it, it was really well done. But it is, and they point out in that 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 the prosecutor 
in uh, in in the innocent man also filed a, a defamation lawsuit against John Grisham, you know, over the innocent man, and it was thrown out. So I mean, uh, it's uh, basically with Colburn, all the making murder people basically did was uh, was was repeat. You know, and document what right. was the original trial. I mean, anybody that has half a brain had already, you know, known that Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, that was their whole case at trial, was that uh, that uh, the Colburn and Link, uh, you know, were the suspected, you know, evidence planters on, on any and all these pieces of evidence. Zellner's backed off that a little bit, says, well, they didn't do everything, but uh, but they did some things, but other people were involved in planting other evidence and stuff like that. So, I, I just don't see that case going anywhere. And, and I have experience. I mean, I, st- I took a whole semester in college, you know, on communications law, studied libel and slander and, and all that stuff. And and and, uh, and 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 there's just I don't want to give them any any tips, but just uh, by listening to this. But just it's it's there's a there's a. I, that thing's not going to go anywhere. Let's well, just leave it at that. What Zellner so. was saying, though, is that now he has to go back and revisit all these things, and now they can bust them on all his lies, basically, mm-hmm. is what she was saying. Well, yeah, and and, there, and, and and the Zellner uncovered, which I worked into my book, uh, which I thought was an unbelievable, one of those unbelievable discoveries that has happened since making a murder part one came out and, uh, you know, and since Zellner came on board. But that's the fact that she was able to find um, that individual that came forward, that guy named Kevin Ramlow, mm-hmm. who uh, you know, who saw bumped into Andy Colburn at the Senex uh, gas station, and, and we know the guy's telling the truth because he said he remembered distinctly seeing that uh, that poster, the wanted, you know, poster, of Trace. Yeah, and sure enough, that there was a poster, and it was it was it was one of the first posters that they put up with Teresa Hallbuck. So so there was a couple different versions that were floating around out there, and uh, you know, and this guy distinctly remembered seeing it and and again as Zellner's pointed out this guy has no dog in the fight whatsoever you know i mean it's the opposite i mean he'd be the last person that would want any notoriety or any publicity but he just kind of he didn't even watch make your murder when it first came out it just uh you know it took like a year year and a half or so before he finally got around or you know was thumbing through netflix and said oh maybe i'll watch that you know uh, yeah. but uh but then his conscience got to him, and he realized, you know, I got to do something. And uh, and I don't know if you remember, but I think that what he actually knew, and you know, was kind of friends with Scott Tadich, and uh, you know, sent him several text messages, you know, after watching Making a Murder, and you know, Tadich just kind of ignores him and blows him off, which yeah. again is kind of interesting if you think about it, uh, you know. So it just, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if Andy Colburn really thought this through, but. Uh, you know, if you Google John Farrick and Andy Colburn, or Andrew Colburn, I should say his formal name, you know, it always shows up in Google. But like he had, uh, we did a story, or one of my colleagues did a story. He sent me this long email, you know, basically berating me about a month after Making a Murder came out for some of my stories that I was doing, Col- you know, Colburn for USA did? Today. Yeah, Colburn did. Yeah, yeah, he sent me this long, long email. My boss was like, hell, let's run a story on this, you know, and, you know, and, uh, and, and my boss stood up for me, rightfully so. You know, but uh, but basically his his, e- his email was just uh, trying to take me to the task, you know, and, and he was claiming like that we were, you know, printing private information about where Jim Link lived, you know, which is not true. We just said basically he moved to Arizona is living on a golf course or something like that. But it seemed to me, though, you know, and then he said something at the end, which was really kind of cryptic. He was like, you know, you better watch what you're, you know, wishing for or something like that. He's like, you may have Brendan Dassey, you know, as one of your next door neighbors someday. Uh, and uh, it just, uh, 
he's just one of these kind of guys that he just snaps. He's really impulsive, you could tell. And uh, and just uh, I, I think that he's one of those cops that, you know, everything's black and white to him. And if he was involved, you know, in either planting evidence or helping other people plant evidence, he would be the kind of guy that would justify it in his mind to say, you know, Steve Avery and Brendan Dassey, you know, are just no good people, you know, and, uh, you know, so we right, got to yeah, bend yeah. the rules. That would be the kind of mind frame, you know, that, that would go on in, in, in Andy Colburn's head and stuff like that. So, yeah. A last question for you, John, with all the research you've done and everything that's going on, uh, do you think that Stephen Avery and Brandon Dassey will, will be released ever anytime soon? I think I think that they will, uh, just because I think that at some point in time that there's going to be, uh, you know, the right people will be in either office or, or on the judicial, you know, on, on a bench at some point in time. And just that will step back and realize, you know, do the facts of the case justify a conviction? You know, did they basically it really boils down to, you know, was the original case was it fair and just, you know, or, you know, and if you find any you know, hint of planted evidence or tainted, you know, testimony, then the facts are that they deserve a, a new trial. So uh, I think that there's a real good chance that, you know, both of them will eventually, uh, you know, be free and, uh, you know, be out. I just couldn't tell you right now, Chris, if it's going to be three months from now or whether it might be, you know, two to three years from now, because uh, again, and I, I based that on my experience of covering the Brendan Dassey case, whereas, you know, I was sure as, you know, sure as day, you know, that Brendan was going to be, you know, set free in November 2016, and he wasn't. And then when he gets, he wins his case on the appeal, yeah. I was sure as heck he was going to get set free finally then, you know, and the state of Wisconsin's, you know, attorneys blocked it uh, again. So, uh, um, it's uh, but now you do have the change though that Brad Schimmel and Scott Walker, the governor and the attorney general, who are both just kind of went along with the program, so to speak, and, and just refused to really even re examine the uh, Teresa Halba case. Both of those guys got defeated. Oh, wow, in November, yeah, the election. Down. Yeah, Walker had run for he was one of the last guys that jumped in in the 2016 election, uh, you know, for president, uh, and and he just I mean, was too late to the game, but mm-hmm. uh, but there was a lot of people that thought that he was going to have a good chance to be the Republican nominee for president, but he just kind of waited and waited till there was already like fifteen or whatever people already in the in the in mm-hmm. the uh, yeah in the primary, and he just um, was lost. You could just tell that he wasn't uh, ready for the national scene like he thought he was. But yeah, he just really didn't have much to run on, and you know, and I guess uh, so, so. Like I said, he just lost to a different guy who had been, the, I think, the state's uh, oversaw Department of Education for Wisconsin. So time will tell, though. I, I couldn't tell you right now if these, if the two, if the new governor and the new attorney general are going to be any different, you know, than uh, than Schimmel or Walker. But but at least there's hope now that hey, maybe finally we got some you know politicians in office that are willing to do the right thing and, and may not be you know going along with the program and put up such a big fight like Schimmel, you know, and Greg er, and Scott Walker did. Well, so. hopefully, hopefully there's a turnover because I'll tell you what, watching Making a Murder Part One, it ends on such a downer. Part Two ends on such a downer. It'd be really great if Part Three ended with those guys, you know, walking out of jail and and being free and being proven that they're innocent because it's quite the uh, tangled web. Explained very well in your book, The Wrecking Crew. And John, I appreciate this, man. It's uh, a real interesting um, topic to think about. Yeah, no, thanks very much, Chris, uh, really for having me on. And again, just for great uh, 
discussion about the case because it really is, uh, you know, so unbelievable. And uh, and again, you know, we can only learn from from history in these kinds of cases. Uh, you know, and the hope is that uh, you know that there's no more cases similar to this that uh, you know that could recur absolutely. in our criminal justice system. So absolutely. Well, thanks, John. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. You have a good one. All right, thanks to John Farrick. The book is called Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery. And it's a great read, especially after seeing the second season of Making a Murder on Netflix. Uh, you can get the book at Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Uh, once again, too, don't forget ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Sign up to the mailing list. We will be announcing details on the second wave, part two, uh, coming up very, very soon. Other than that, I'm pretty much off. I got nothing going on. Uh, I'm just excited to be relaxing, taking some time off. Uh, big news coming up. Uh, actually, it probably already was uh, announced, but I will talk about that more on Friday. And also, we're going to talk uh, to the biggest WWE superstar right now, the hottest WWE superstar coming up the ranks, talking about Mustafa Ali. He's talking about his meteoric rise to main event status on the main roster very quickly, how it happened, what it's been like so far. He's talking about the 16 years he spent on the indie scene before landing at WWE uh, 205 Live. He's also telling stories about the other gig he had before becoming a full-time wrestler. He was a Chicago police officer. It's a great conversation with Mustafa Ali on Friday. So we'll see you then. Uh, We'll talk more about the big announcement. And uh, until then, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah, boy! And go watch Making a Murder if you haven't seen it. Uh, it, it uh, It must be seen. Go check it out, enjoy it, and we'll see you on Friday.